0: was the Eagle Podcast before Christmas, and all through the virtual newsroom. Lots of journalists were typing. All their deadlines did loom. The Capital Region is a lit and twinkling, as it typically is at this time of year, reminding us that it's Christmas. But it's a very different Christmas from years past, One that comes with stern warnings from public officials to avoid a universal hallmark of the holiday season. That is, gathering with friends and loved ones. Coming up on this episode, we'll have the week's top headlines, but also some festive holiday cheer.
1: 2020 has hit us quite hard enough, thank
2: you very much.
0: We'll hear about the curious local history of the world's most famous Christmas poem.
2: Twas the night before Christmas.
0: And we'll learn how local food and grocery delivery drivers are kind of like Santa Claus.
3: It turns out neither of them had ever thought of it that way.
0: This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe.
0: Welcome to The Eagle, I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again for the second to last time this year uh, before 2021 hits us with Times Union editor, Casey Seiler. Casey, there's a lot of grim news this week, and and I promise we'll get to some happy stuff at the end of this conversation, but we're going to start with, uh, in in much the similar way that we've done for the last several months, in that, what's the local COVID scene? What's going on? What's the latest?
1: Jess, first of all, please don't say 2021 is going to hit us.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, maybe I jinxed it. I don't want to jinx it.
1: Enough of that, but... 2020 has hit us quite hard enough, thank you very much, and continues to uh, as as we round out the year. Albany County crossed the threshold of uh, you know 1,000 active cases going at the same time earlier this week. That's scary. Hospitalizations are are still way too high, and the daily uh, new infection rates are you know they're either right right below or right above 200 for. Far too many days. This situation is, of course, not relegated to the capital region. It's really it's happening across upstate and and really across the state writ large. And now, of course, we have the the additional concern over this variant strain that has emerged in the UK that is um, is apparently much more transmissible, even as the state and all states and the federal government are racing to get as many doses of the vaccines that have been approved um, out to the public.
0: Now, New York has received a number of those vaccines, and Governor Cuomo this week announced that you know upwards of 89,000 New Yorkers have already been vaccinated, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. And the the first uh, doses are going out last week. The you know, sort of the first pass was healthcare workers, especially those that are working with vulnerable populations. We're talking on Wednesday. A large group of first responders are getting uh, are getting the vaccination. Even as we speak, they're getting it in an undisclosed location because uh, local officials would rather the public not know for security reasons where there is a a large stock of of the vaccine. But at the same time, the governor in his briefing earlier today said that the state health department is considering the possibility of creating a pilot program where people get rapid tests before they go in to see a key Buffalo Bills playoff game that's supposed to be played in Buffalo um, early next month. And then they would be contact traced to see if, you know, if the rapid testing was able to actually stem the spread, which to me and to people who have had a difficult time getting rapid tests, if, for example, oh, I don't know, you want to go visit an elderly relative in a nursing home, that idea seems perhaps a little bit an example of misplaced priorities, but I guess we'll have to see. The governor and the health department said that they are considering it as a pilot program. So we'll have to see if they actually move forward with it, which is in no way to disrespect the bill's success this season. But
0: Now, as a Buffalo Bills fan, I would have to say that wouldn't it be truly tragic in a Buffalo Bills fan's way if they had to miss, you know, the Bills actually winning the Super Bowl this year after all that they've been through?
1: Yeah, second only to them dying or relative dying of coronavirus.
0: exactly. Exactly. Now, moving on, we've got, well, we had some big weather news last week, but that's kind of having a ripple effect on this week. We're supposed to get, you know, a bit of rain and a thaw, but the worrisome thing about that is that it could cause a lot of snowmelt and flooding. What's the latest there?
1: Right. Rick Carlin and Eduardo Medina noted that the heavy rain that is supposed to settle on the region on Christmas Eve and into Christmas Day which could bring one to two inches of rain is going to fall on a snowpack that is still pretty intense. Um, you know, we most parts of the region got about two feet of snow just not even a week ago yet. A lot of that, I can tell you from looking out my backyard, is still there. What that can do is present a degree of peril to the foundation of people's homes and to the dryness of their basements, because of course. All that snow is uh, going to go somewhere when it turns into water. And what you want to ensure is that as it comes off your roof, as it flows through your hopefully unclogged gutters, it's going somewhere other than into your basement. I went out to the north side of my house. There's a, a, a narrow alley between my house and my neighbors. My neighbor's roof, it's not his fault, it's the way the house d- is designed, dumped a bunch of very heavy snow in there. I dug a trench sort of along my foundation going out about you know two, two and a half feet or so. And that snow, I'm here to tell you, was heavy. And if that snow soaks up a bunch of additional rain as it's thawing, it can turn into something very much like concrete. So people just need to be very aware and kind of um do what they can to make their outdoor safe without doing anything too, too acrobatic like going up on your roof to clear away you know ice dams or anything like that.
0: Yes, that is not recommended.
1: Not and at Times Union in no way.
0: <laughs> but we do have some tips on safe ways to, you know, prepare yourself for something like this at timesunion.com. Moving on, uh, some national news here that has some local uh, implications. The tragic Lockerbie plane bombing of 1988. There's some there's some news there. Do you want to kind of give us the update?
1: Yeah, there were additional charges brought by federal prosecutors against the alleged um, bomb maker. And uh, this occurred on what is now the 32nd anniversary of the bombing. This was Uh, A jet that was um, flying back, carrying a heavy contingent of Syracuse University exchange students, including the um, sister of Richard Hartunian, who went on to become the U.S. attorney for the Northern District. I mean, I was a college student at the end of 1988. I vividly remember this horrible crash. I think everybody has probably seen the images of the wreckage from the plane, which exploded in midair and rained down upon you know the Scottish town of, of Lockerbie. It was, I would hazard to say that it was probably the most horrifying terrorist attack from then until 9-11.
0: Wow, that is horrific. Well, we will be following that. Let's get some happy news. Yes, uh, Let's talk about something happy <laughs> for a change. You know what? I'm going to let you introduce this one because I don't know if I could quite do it justice.
1: So, Akeem Norder, who is an outstanding historian and an outstanding copy editor, she is also my neighbor. She's a historian of, among other things, the neighborhood that we both live in here in Albany's beautiful Pine Hills. But she uh, went into the archives and found examples of children's letters to Santa that were published in the Times Union basically 120 years ago in print. And they are heartbreakingly <laughs> heartwarming, I guess you would say, in the sense that they show that children are children the world over. And this story, as well as a characteristically excellent column from Paul Grandall, who looked at children's letters to Santa today and noting how those letters in many cases reflect the concerns of children who have, you know, spent the last nine months or more living with a pandemic, as well as potentially economic hardship, economic anxiety. Both of these stories, which you can read at timesunion.com, are reminders that there is nothing or very little in the adult world that does not leach into the experiences of our children, that they absorb the kind of flavor of our anxieties in the same way that, you know, a carton of milk might absorb the the flavor of the food that's sitting next to it on the shelf. It's a reminder of the fact that our children are not like these tiny innocents, that they are, their emotional magnets and, you know, little pitchers have big ears and it comes out in letters to Santa.
0: Indeed. And Casey, I just want to tell you happy holidays. But before we Leave off this topic. Here are a few of those letters. You can read the rest at timesunion.com.
2: Dear Santa Claus, I thought I would write you a few lines saying that I want a storybook and a gold ring and a pair of gloves. As I could not think of anything else, I will close my letter. Miss Irene Garman, sixty-nine Fourth Avenue. Dear Santa Claus, I thought I'd write you a few lines telling you what I'd like for Christmas. A pair of shoes, a pair of stockings, a pair of mittens, a pencil tablet, a pair of boots, and a pencil box, and a handkerchief, and a ruler, a horse wagon, and a train of cars. I'll be very much pleased if I get them. John Donovan.
0: Jolly old St. Nick, or Santa Claus, rallies for a marathon night of present delivery once a year. But as table-hopping Steve Barnes reported this week, local food and grocery delivery drivers have been delivering the goods to excited people thousands of times since the pandemic began. I love how your article, you know, the article that you wrote compares Instacart drivers and food delivery people to Santa Claus. Can you expound on that?
3: <laughs> well, you know, in journalism, we, we, we need a peg for a story. We have to hang hang it on something. And And this seemed to me a very small, what I thought, realization that like, hey, they're like Santa Claus and it's around Christmas time. So I'll just <laughs> do that. But it turns out neither of them had ever thought of it that way. Uh, and they were both pleased to consider that. <laughs>
0: I love it. I love it. It's it's very magical. It's a it's a magical association. But, you know, in reality, you as you said, we've been relying on these people for months now, a lot of us in the capital region. Can you kind of just go through what their story has been in the last
3: several months? Some people, it has absolutely been necessary. You're right. This is essential and they were judged essential workers. uh, And that was primarily for people who are not like me, which is to say not lazy. They actually have real reasons. They didn't want to go out. They didn't want to be exposed. They weren't capable of it. They're somebody in their home, and I'm just lazy. So I've been a big Instacart fan (laughs) since even before the pandemic. I discovered it, and I thought, this is really cool. And of course, you know, there's nothing new about food delivery. People have been getting Chinese and pizza delivered for uh, decades, you know. But in in this case, both of these people had reasons for going into it. One of them, Casey Madala... As a young woman, mid-20s, and she works for a social services organization assisting people with disabilities, and she lost a job that was pretty good and then found another one in the same field that paid considerably less. And she had been a pizza delivery person in high school and thought, oh, well, l- let me try that. So she started with one of the big three national apps that need not be named because they charge absolutely obscene fees to restaurants. And she hooked up with Melio, which is based in Latham, and is locally owned and now has about 300 restaurants from about Slingerland's all the way up to Queensbury. And they promised Casey they would double her money. And in fact, they did double the money she was making from the other app. And she makes more money now. She drives about 30 hours a week for Melio, makes more money from Melio than she does her quote-unquote real job. And it was the reason she was able to buy a new car this year.
0: Wow, that's excellent.
3: Then the other guy, by the name of Roger Allen, he's 50. He lives up in uh, northern Saratoga County and was working for a theme park in the Lake George area. And when the 2020 season got flushed, his job went with it. And so when he started he was doing 55 or 60 hours a week with Instacart which shops at a variety of mostly supermarkets but also some other stores everything from you know BJ's wholesale club to Sephora and uh, we can set aside for a minute what we think about whether or not somebody who's working 55 or 60 hours a week is actually an employee as opposed to an independent contractor as Instacart maintains so they don't have to pay them benefits or anything but It was really helpful for Roger because when he was working hard, he was bringing home $1,500 a week and sometimes doing nine or even 10 shopping runs uh, a day, picking people's groceries up for it. He had also been an Uber driver, and he said there's no absolutely no comparison uh, that Instacart customers tip way better than Uber customers.
0: Wow, that's great. So in a way, this has been a salvation for both sides of the equation. You know, the folks who really needed to have, uh, you know, deliveries for COVID safety reasons and other reasons. And then the folks who are doing it are, you know, finding these unexpected benefits that are really helping them at a time, right? Definitely. Um, Now, what about safety issues? Are the, the folks that you talk to, have any concerns about COVID safety for them while they're no, doing this?
3: Both of them have have to uh, answer questions. Um, it's, it's like COVID screening, and this is the best that can be done, you know, at the, at the moment without actually somebody giving them a rapid test. But they have to answer. You know, have you been exposed to anybody? Have you, you know, at any point did you encounter somebody that you were suspicious about? Have you yourself been feeling good? Do you have a temperature? So they answer all these questions. And Casey says with the restaurants there, there's often a dedicated door that they go to, or, or right at the end of the bar, there's an area set aside for them because they, there are restaurants that are now doing more than 50% of their business. Takeout. And these were complete sit-down restaurants that hardly ever did takeout, and now they're doing 50% of their business. So they've gotten pretty adept at it. And, you know, there's sanitizer there, and there's insistent on masks. And for uh, Roger, he says he never even sees customers at the door. It's rare. Casey says she at least sees people or she sees them through the door and waves at them because they're more interested in hot food than somebody is in groceries. But they both say while well, they're aware that they're going into places They also feel safe because of the measures they're taking and the measures that are required. The first time, in fact, we tried to shoot a photo of Roger. Uh, He admitted he screwed up logging into the app and his fat finger got in the way and he clicked the wrong button and they wouldn't let him shop that day. So he had to reschedule the photo. Oh no, (laughs) poor guy. Yeah, he completely helped and his his finger just got in the way. He's like, I mm, hit the wrong button. And they were like, nope, you can't retract that answer. Come back tomorrow.
0: Oh my goodness. Going forward, where do you think this industry is going? Like, if we suddenly, you know, the vaccine, you know, miraculously cures us all of, of this pandemic, and and you know, restaurants go back to business as usual and such, where do you think this is headed?
3: I think for certainly a, a, a large, per, I don't know, large percentage, a percentage of customers, including likely me, are going to uh, stick with Instacart just because. There are two grocery stores, depending on which route I take home, I can pop in. And I was somebody who was stopping even twice a week after work. And I'd be like, oh, you know, I want a piece of fish and and a salad tonight for dinner. Oh, you know, that bread looks good. I'll just spontaneously buy a loaf of bread and stick it in the freezer. And I really haven't missed it. I swear since January, I have stepped foot in a supermarket twice, including once the two days before Thanksgiving. Wow. And, you know, I'm somebody who shopped a lot. I, I still went to the farmer's market back in the warmer. Since they moved indoors, I haven't. But I went to the farmer's market plenty, but I've not gone to supermarkets. So I think grocery will continue just because people love the convenience of it. And if you're spending hundred dollar $100 on an order, you know, you're probably between fees and tip. You're probably going to pay $20. But $20 to sit at your computer at home, type in everything you need, uh, consult the person on substitutions and make sure they're getting you a small head of green cabbage, because if you live by yourself, a big head of green cabbage lasts a really long time. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's something wonderfully intimate about it that one of the things Roger said to me, uh, that it's amazing what you get to know about people uh, from what they order. And he's he, we didn't put this in the piece, but he was like, you know. Sometimes you you see what somebody's ordering from the pharmacy section, wink, nudge, nudge, nod, and say, you go, dude.
0: (laughs) That's great.
3: Oh, Um, so there's a lot
0: of personality in it, too.
3: Yeah, uh, but I also do think that um, restaurant delivery is going to drop off because because restaurant people love their restaurants and they're missing them. They desperately want to be out to them. So as soon as they can go back out and feel safe, they will.
0: The, break.
2: the children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads.
1: Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts
0: welcome back you're listening to the eagle a times union podcast i'm jessica marshall The year is 1823. On a cold morning in late December, residents of Troy, New York read in their local newspaper what was to become one of the world's most famous Christmas poems.
2: "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, In hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there.
0: A visit from St. Nicholas, better known nowadays as Twas the Night Before Christmas, turns 200 in just a few short years. Yet it still resonates today, particularly in its birthplace of Troy. Columnist Joyce Bassett has been writing about the historical impact of this poem for several years, and I caught up with her to learn more. So, you know, apparently, you know a lot about the history of this very iconic poem, and it has ties to the Capital Region. So could you talk a little bit about the poem and how it came to be?
4: Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because I have a really cool interest in it because I delivered the Troy record as a young girl. I grew up in Troy and then I became a journalist. So maybe that had something to do with it. People who live in Troy and the Capital Region um, really um, enjoy this history, this special part of history. Almost 200 years ago, Troy's newspaper at the time was the Troy Sentinel. And um, they published a poem that was called A Visit from St. Nicholas. And, um, you know, you can actually get copies of the the poem. You can see the the actual copies of the newspaper. Um, And that poem started out Twas the Night Before Christmas and became known as Twas the Night Before Christmas.
2: When what to my wondering eyes did appear, but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be Saint Nick.
0: Wow, I mean, I read the poem every year to my kids on the night before Christmas. It's just so iconic and I have to confess, I did not
4: know that's where it came from. That's such a special tie to the region. I love telling the story year after year because, you know, even when I get together with family and friends, I go, you remember that this is from Troy, right? (laughs) There's some
0: controversy over who wrote it. So tell me about that. Like who came out and said that they wrote it and then who's challenging that? And, you know, what's the the controversy there?
4: Yeah, so the longstanding popular, the person who people think, wrote the poem, is, his name is Clement Clark Moore. He's the long accepted author. So he was like a rich guy from Manhattan and he reportedly said that he wrote the poem the year before it was published. So he said he wrote it in 1822, it was published in 1823. There's actually a plaque in downtown Troy that cites him as the author. And if you look at books and, you know, pretty much he's cited as the author. And then um, there's the family of a gentleman um, named Livingston. He was a farmer of a pretty prominent Dutch family in the Hudson Valley. And he wrote poems and he died in 1922. He never said that he wrote the poem, but his family after his death found a bunch of things that led them to believe that he wrote the poem. So there's been this long Long mystery who done it thing going on, like who 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 actually wrote the poem. Yeah, and and one of the things that
0: you wrote about this week, um, on, and over the years, I assume, is how we're still kind of parsing out that controversy in a kind of entertaining way. So what what what's gone on in the last couple of years regarding this?
4: Yeah, I'll never forget. I was working once um as an editor on the night desk, and we had one of our reporters who who went out to cover a mock trial? And um, it was the story of the night. Everybody loved it. So um, there were prominent judges and politicians who got together and thought it'd be a great idea to do a mock trial. And it was called Livingston versus Moore, who really wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas. So one side um, was represented by the Casey's, longtime judge and lawyers in the Detroit. Uh, area. And then they represented Livingston. And then uh, Clement Clark Moore, he was represented by E. Stewart Jones, who's, uh, you know, very prominent uh, local attorney. And it was a hung jury. That was um, on the 190th anniversary. So <laughs> that was pretty neat. And um, then they did it again the following year, and the Casey's won. So, um, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, Something that Troy has embraced and you know made events around the, uh, the history of it.
2: More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all.
0: I'm curious, and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, no one knows the answer to this question, but I wonder what your thoughts are on it. Why was it published in a Troy paper? Like, was there any evidence as to why and why it was anonymous as
4: well? I think it, it was just submitted and, um, by someone. And then, you know, they, they happened to be the ones that they submitted it to. That's all that I read on it. And then, um, you know, I think the fact that it was... Author list just it probably was just handed from person to person, I'm guessing, and then um, and then it wound up in the newspaper as more of an you know entertainment, obviously for around the holidays, you know <laughs> people didn't try to find out who the author was and it went viral, so to speak,
0: you know <laughs> right. and only the way something could go viral in the 19th century <laughs> exactly, exactly. It does. It has a very mystical quality about it. I mean, I know hearing it as a child myself, I, you know, I just felt it was such a magical poem and it, it really like, you know, it resonated with me and it stays with you your whole life. Right. Sure.
4: And and there's so many um, variations of it as well, funny ones. And obviously everyone has grown up with this and everyone has, you know, I have an an old book that um, I, I really treasure that. Um, has the poem illustrated, and I just love it, and I bring it out every year.
0: Oh, well, this year will be no exception, right? The COVID pandemic can't stop us from enjoying those holiday traditions, right?
4: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Obviously, in the 200th anniversary, we're going to have a really big celebration on hand, so that'll be 2023. So we have, uh, Troy has a couple of years to plan for this, and I'm sure even even next year when this is over, um, they'll be celebrating that.
2: And to all, a good night.
0: That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. Special thanks to Kinsey Marshall, Caleb Banowski, and Times Union producer Kevin O'Toole for lending us their voice talents for this episode. We'll be back next week for our final episode of 2020. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And a very Merry Christmas to those who celebrate.